Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition of the podcast. You'll be hearing from noted author and speaker Josh McDowell, who discussed with me some principles based on his latest book involving parents teaching and empowering their children to make right choices. Then from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2018 National Religious Broadcasters Convention, you'll be hearing from June Hunt of Hope for the Heart, relating principles about aging well and glorifying God. Also from NRB 2018, you'll be hearing from Phil and Kathleen Cook, who shared about the importance of Christians having an effective witness in the culture, which stems from a devoted personal walk with God. Also on this edition of The Intersection, it's author and commentator Tom Gilson from The Stream, offering insight into how Christians can respond when they are facing opposing viewpoints or skeptical comments regarding matters of faith. You'll also be meeting Brooks Douglas, a crime survivor whose story is told in a movie coming to theaters one night only on Thursday, April 12th, a film emphasizing the rights of victims. And you'll be hearing from another person involved in Christian films who visited with me recently at NRB. He's Stephen Baldwin of the famous Acting Baldwin family, providing information about a recent project documenting the life story of a missionary to India who ministered to people with leprosy. Finally, it's Peter Sprigg of the Family Research Council, providing an update on recent developments involving the Trump administration's attempts to limit transgender individuals from serving in the U.S. military. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Josh McDowell is a noted author and speaker who offers strong instruction for parents and families. His latest book is called Set Free to Choose Right, Equipping Today's Kids to Make Right Moral Choices for Life. He spoke with me concerning some of the guidance he offers parents to empower their children to make correct choices in accordance with God's truth. Here now is Josh McDowell. Being free is not being able to do what you want to do. True freedom is to do what you know you ought to do. Yeah. And when you help students to give them a, a greater reservoir, a greater insight on how to handle choices they have to make, they truly become free. They can become free from the Internet, free from pornography, free from peer pressure, everything. Um, it's when children don't know the steps that there, there's anxiety and a lack of freedom. So I believe if you help parents who in turn can teach their children, oh, my gosh, Bob, you hit a perfect formula for that. But here's the problem. Almost all the kids I ever meet and parents know what is right and what is wrong. Now, that is starting to disappear, I have to mm. admit, in the last five, eight years. Yeah. But they pretty much know what is right and what is wrong. But you can almost never, ever find someone who can tell you why it is right or why it is wrong. And that means that you only have a belief system. You don't have convictions. In the day of the Internet and pornography, if all you have is a good belief system, you will not survive. We need to build convictions into our children, which means they know what they believe, why they believe it, and then third, they experience it in their lives. And this is what this book helps parents to pass on to their children. You talk about the importance of teaching these choices, what's right and what's wrong, and also teaching the why certain choices are right and choices are wrong. So elaborate, if you would, on how parents can really teach the 
the why, why certain things are wrong, why certain things are right, and the, the validity of those choices. With pastors, parents, young people, you ask him, do you believe lying is wrong? Yes. Why? Almost everyone will say, because the Bible says so. And Bob, that is totally false. Absolutely nothing is morally right or wrong because the Bible says so. That's pure legalism. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible is not legalistic. But the way so many people teach it and live it, it becomes legalistic. Now, here's the... Here's what to look at. Two questions. One, is lying wrong because the Bible says do not lie? That's 98% of Christians. Or does the Bible say do not lie because lying is wrong, but it's not wrong because the Bible says it. But the Bible says it because it is wrong. Then why is lying wrong? Because of the person, character, and nature of God. God is truth. Anything contrary to the person, character, and nature of God is false. That's what coincides with the person, character, and nature of God is righteous. This is why it's so important for parents, one, to build a relationship with their child where their child will respond to them. Second, to instill in them a certain concept of who God is. Who is God in his very nature and character? What are his attributes? What does he mean? And then third, to show how those attributes become the foundation of choices of right from wrong. It goes back to the person nature of God. Jesus was confirmed by some of the religious leaders, and Jesus said, you have the scriptures, and they're boasting because we have the oracles of God. We're privileged people. Jesus said, you have the scriptures, and in them you think you have life. Like everybody today will hold up their Bible and say, in this you have life, in this you have life. No, you don't. Jesus corrected him. Notice what Jesus said. He said, no, you have life in me. The Bible was given to us, not to worship, not to see life, but to point us to Christ, who is the life. And he's the very basis of moral choices. And so those three things of parents, and if parents go to the, it's the same title as the book, setfreetochooseright.com. Just set free to choose right.com. You can download a number of materials all free about the book and uh, various things that can help you. Plus, my wife and I did a thing for it called the seven A's of parenting. Seven incredibly simply simple principles, biblically based, on how to build a loving, intimate relationship with your child, no matter if your child is 30 years old. And so go to setfreetochooseright.com, and you can download it all free. But it starts with the parents, Bob. Josh McDowell here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website setfreetochooseright.com. His ministry site is josh.org. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's June Hunt of Hope for the Heart, who visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2018 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, to discuss matters of aging, as she outlines in the mini-book called Aging Well, Living Long, Finishing Strong. Here now is June Hunt. I understand that there is an uncle that you had known for never saying an unkind word about anyone. Tell me just a bit about his principles. This is my Uncle Jimmy, and I kept hearing this growing up. No one has ever heard him say an unkind word. And... You know, that, that's extraordinary. And I, I think what I 
did at one time was on our radio program, Hope for the Heart, I got these siblings together, my, uh, my two, two un- uncles and my mother. And so I had on tape what they felt were essentials as they were growing older because they were, uh, you know, at that time uh, about like in their 80s. And so uh, I, I put this as, you know, five rays of hope from James Ray. Experiment with new experiences. Now, one fascinating thing that my uncle did is he became a rock hound. A rock hound means you search for interesting rocks, and he bought a tumbler and he would and, and a cutter, and so he made coasters out of rock. It, it, it was mm. fascinating. The scouts absolutely were fascinated by him, so he never stopped learning and trying new things. So. You would think, well, is there something you've always been curious about? Is there a hobby? Um, and, and then as, as you continue to learn and apply, and apply things to life, you know, the, the scripture says, let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. So the more you are learning new things, you're fascinated, and then you share that fascination with others. Uh, but the, the key thing you'd mentioned is not speaking negatively about others. You know, Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer everyone. So, you know, he, he would say, <clears throat> if you can't say something nice about someone, don't say anything at all. He lived that, and he was known for that. So he was trustworthy when people would talk with him. Um, he would say, live by the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And, and his two sons, they knew that he lived by that. It was highly impactful to them because they told me so. So when you think about that, experiment with new experiences. Um, don't speak negatively about others. Live by the golden rule. And then look for the best in others. He, my uncle Jimmy, he would say, look for the good. Look for the good in others. And he was a scout leader for decades. And he, would, he really strongly believed in the younger generation, where so many people have given up on the youth of today. He continually looked for opportunities to even educate and encourage young people. And so when you look for the best in others, compliment them state it to them i really value i really see how you really have perseverance and all of a sudden here's this young person who needs to hear encouraging words because the bible says in first thessalonians 5:11 encourage one another and build each other up june hunt here on the intersection learn more through the ministry website at hopefortheheart.org Next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, from the 2018 NRB Convention in Nashville, it's Phil and Kathleen Cook of Cook Pictures, who stopped by to discuss their respective current book releases. These include the book co-authored by Phil entitled The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back, as well as Kathleen's book called Hope for Today, Staying Connected to God in a Distracted Culture. 
From that NRB conversation, here are Phil and Kathleen Cook. What we discovered in our book is, as Christians, we're just not very committed to our lifestyle. And I think we need to start by cleaning house in the church so that we can live a much more committed lifestyle to the cause of Christ. When that happens, people will notice. And that's why I wrote my book, Hope for the Number Four Today, because it's based on the Center for Bible Engagement's eight-year study, million-dollar study on the habits and activities of Christians and what we do that actually affects our lives in a positive way. They found if you are reading your Bible four or more times a week, you will make positive changes in the direction you go. In fact, anger actually goes down 40%. Substance abuse goes down 70%. Um, pornography usage goes down 70%. Even obesity goes down 20%. I could if use just that. getting back into <laughs> reading the Word. Very interesting what you're saying this because I, I remember a conversation I had with someone Center for Bible Engagement. If not, I'm not mistaken, it's a ministry outreach of Back to the Bible. Correct. Yes, it's and correct. they they actually did didn't they do an app they that did. that yes. would remind you Tandem. at certain periods of time at which you might yeah. be vulnerable throughout the day that you'll get a reminder telling yeah. you that yes. yeah, you're in a danger. Is that right? Well, Arnie that uh, cool? Arnie Cole, who uh, headed up that study, did the forward for my book. And uh, it is based on that study. It's based on a four-day format. I'm, I'm encouraging readers to use their cell phone to remind them to get back in the Word and engage with God because that is the basis of where we need to be. It's where we've moved away. You know, we, all, we have almost five Bibles in our home, yet less than 50% of Christians will say that they've read the Bible through one time. Well, and the concept, and I know I, I kind of stumbled on this on the air the other day, when you think about reducing the level of sinning, sinning <laughs> yeah. less, yes, we don't really, do That's we talk right. about that a whole lot we these don't. days? It, it, yeah. Maybe we, do we think it's impossible or do we just not think about sin because it's, it's not culturally relevant? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Uh, well, Bob, you made me think of the word holiness. Remember that? People used to talk about that. <sighs> I heard something yeah, about that. There you go. <laughs> Nobody, what, what pastor preaches about holiness anymore? We, in fact, I think the word sin has almost fallen out of disfavor completely. We just don't think in terms of those kind of issues and Christians. You know, what's interesting is you and my generation we're all about truth. Apologetics ministries blossom. You know, guys like Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell did great work. But for the younger generation today, they want to see it lived out. They, they see if you're ta if you're preaching a message, but you're not living it out in your life, they won't have anything to do with it. That's a hypocrisy is a big thing with this generation. Mm. So Kathleen, yes. in, in your book, Hope for Today, and it's subtitled, Stay Connected to God in a Distracted Culture. Again, you're talking about this this four-day-a-week yes. Bible engagement. So how does your book, how is that a tool that people can use to kind of help them stay focused? Well, you know, the two biggest reasons we don't engage in the Bible is because we're too busy and too distracted. As Phil said, we are bombarded with thousands of media messages a day. And the second, third, and fourth reasons, rather, is because we think it's not relevant and we don't know where to begin. So hope for today um, brings readers into where they can begin. You know, we're almost afraid of the Bible these days. We are, they think it's an ancient <laughs> manuscript or wow. something that has this mystical something to do with it. They don't know where to begin. They don't think it's relevant. And so Hope for Today is written about cultural things. It's written about um, our work in Hollywood for a number of years, myself raising children, being a career woman, a Screen Actors Guild actress, working in all these capacities. There's something relevant in there. There's a question in each at the end of each uh, entry so that you can um, 
apply this scripture, apply this word to your life and engage in God. And, uh, and also journaling at the end. You know, one thing is we don't, we, don't pass, we don't pass our Bibles on to, any, to our children anymore. And so this gives you an opportunity to actually journal in this book so that you can actually see um, how that scripture affected your life and be able to pass that information and wisdom on to the next generation. Bill and Kathleen Cook here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website Cook, C-O-O-K-E, pictures.com or go to the website influencelab.com. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There is a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also access the Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you visit faithradio.org. Also, through the Meeting House homepage, there are two blogs that are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, Tom Gilson is senior editor for the website The Stream. In a recent discussion, he talked about how Christians can respond when there are challenges or expressions of skepticism regarding matters of faith. Here now is Tom Gilson. One of those claims is that Jesus never existed. So how do we respond when we have people that are of that mindset and possess that perspective? Well, this is a claim that people are making that, that in which they're staking ground. They are saying, hey, you may think Jesus existed. I'm saying he didn't. And when people say something where they're staking their own ground, you can ask them to defend it. And you can simply answer, as with a whole lot of other skeptical claims, you can say, okay, show me the evidence. Show me why you think that's true. And um, what you will find in a large number of cases is that they can't do it. With the claim that Jesus never existed, they're going to run into a big problem because they're going to find that all academically critical, uh, credible historians believe that Jesus did live. In fact, almost all of them believe that he did signs and wonders, and almost all of them believe that, he, uh, that, that the disciples even believed that he rose from the dead. They don't all agree that the disciples were right about that. But um, when people say Jesus never existed, basically what they're doing is they're running up against all of uh, credible academic history. Now, I'm not talking about Christian historians. I'm talking about all historians. There just isn't any good evidence for the position that Jesus never existed. Well, Tom, I want to zero in on this this actual question, a response that Christians can have when there are challenges to our deeply held beliefs. And as you mentioned, that question is, what's your evidence for that? So when you have a you know, when you have someone trying to make the point that that Jesus never existed, well, you can actually respond by asking that question, putting really the responsibility on them to defend these claims that they're making. 
Right, and you can do that with all kinds of claims, and, and some of them are really quite crazy. But you can do that with all kinds of claims. What What's going on, uh, maybe not all the time, but a whole lot of the time, when people come up with these charges is that they're trying to put us on the defensive, and they're trying to make us look irrational or foolish or silly. When uh, And we cooperate with them, unfortunately, by saying, well, uh, gee, I don't know. Um, when... When folks make some you know, strange claims regarding Christianity, the, the the best thing to do is don't get defensive. Uh, let them take the defensive position because, as I said earlier, they staked a, a position, they've claimed some ground, it's up to them to defend it. Now, if they ask us a real question, like, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? That's different. That's when you give a real um, you know, a real informational answer. I'm talking about times when people are uh, challenging us with claims of their own. Such as, as you point out in the stream article, the story of Jesus was borrowed from Mithras or Horus or Isis or, or, or Apollonius of Tyana or whatever. So uh, so apparently, and yeah. this is something I, I got to admit, I wasn't that familiar with. So where where are these these types of claims coming from? Uh, they come from <laughs> they come from each other. They they came from those came from a book by James Fraser called The Golden Bough years ago. But they live because they live. They live because people have heard it somewhere, and they're floating all over the atheist internet. Um, there is um, again with those things, you can say, well, what's your evidence? And they'll say, well, okay. Um, Mithras, or where these people were born of a virgin and, and died and rose again, and you say, okay, tell me how that is really similar to Jesus. And at that point, they're, they're stuck, because the similarities are very, very superficial. There's nothing to it at all. Tom Gilson here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website, thestream.org. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Brooks Douglas, writer and producer of the film The Amendment, in theaters one night only on April 12th. It deals with elements of his story, having been a crime victim. He shared about the movie, which explores themes of faith and forgiveness. From that conversation, this is Brooks Douglas. You know, I actually took this on uh, because I was in a screenwriting class in Los Angeles, and uh, I'd written some different things I never thought I'd take on my own story just because I, I just didn't think it was possible to, to write something that personal. And, and uh, the instructor actually kind of pulled it out of me, what, what the real story was. And, and he said, you know, you should be the one to write this. And I said, I don't think I can. And, and he said, well, it, it, to my mind, you're the only one that can write it. And, and ultimately uh, that guy's name was Paul Brown. And he, <clears throat> he wound up uh, after I'd spent about a year just writing scenes he sat down with me and i I hired him to uh, work with me full-time just finishing the screenplay Uh, and then ultimately paul uh, directed the movie as well but um, it was um, obviously i mean i didn't even think as we were writing the script uh, about who was going to play who and i I knew i wanted to be in it uh you know something more than that you know would you like fries to go with that guy uh but i i uh, didn't think about, uh, I mean, the, the thought of playing my father was such an honor. Uh, you know, he was a minister. Uh, my, our family, were, we were missionaries to Brazil for a few years. And, 
Uh, and he was just, a, you know, the, to my mind, uh, the greatest man I'd ever known. And um, and so uh, when we first started talking about the idea of my playing him, I didn't even think about the crime scene. Uh, I just thought, which is a very, very small part, just a, a few minutes of the movie. Uh, but it is it, it's something that I was going to have to relive. And it wasn't until we actually started doing a lot of the, the scouting and uh, location scouting and things like that, that I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go through that. And going through that scene uh, was one of the, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Um, but it, uh, you know, again, overall, it's been a, a very uh, rewarding experience. Uh, you know, what I, uh, you know, my, my family, we're, we're Christians, obviously with my father being a minister and, uh, uh, I became a Christian at a young age, as did my sister. And, uh, you know, so one of the struggles for me uh, as part of the story was was uh, the, the fact that uh, uh, I had at one time I had the opportunity to meet with Glenn Egg, the guy who shot us, and, and uh, uh, did not go in uh, with warm feelings or the feeling that I would uh, ever uh, forgive him. Uh, and yet, after an hour and a half long meeting, that's what wound up happening. And and so that's something I've been taught, was taught by my parents and taught by my faith. Um, and yet, um, you know, when it when it comes to living these things out, it, it's never as easy as what we we think it's going to be. Uh, but so when I when we started writing, I did I decided just to write the story and not to uh, come at it with an angle of you know trying to tell people that they need to forgive, although that's what, what uh, you know, God tells us to do. Um, I certainly um, uh, didn't, you know, again, I just wanted to let the story tell itself in a way. And, uh, but those, those faith messages uh, would, would come across uh, in a very strong way and, and are central to the, to the entire movie is, you know, so the, the movie is generally about our family and the, Years even in Brazil, we went to Brazil and shot some uh, some of it there, um, and so ultimately, it's a it's it, you know the the tagline or logline, if you will, for the movie is that we we are capable of so much more than we ever thought possible. So ultimately, my my hope is that people are inspired to be the best the, the, of themselves that that they can be, and and for me, uh, even though I'm, I'm you know. Uh, I would never describe myself as being a, a forgiving person by nature. Uh, there was something that uh, God was able to work in my life to uh, help me forgive uh, these guys and, uh, and, and actually sit down and, and uh, have that conversation that resulted uh, in forgiveness with one of them face-to-face. And so you know, I hope that it's more than telling people what they should do or, or trying to tell people what they should do. It's it's to say, you know, here's an example of um, of overcoming um, and and going way beyond what sometimes we're humanly capable of, and and saying, hey, we can we can all do this, we can all do better, and we can all be our best selves when we need to be. Brooks Douglas here on the intersection. Find out more by going to the website theamendmentmovie.com. 
Well, actor Stephen Baldwin visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB 2018 to discuss a variety of topics, including some of his movie activities, including the project centered around the life of missionary Graham Staines. It's called Simply Staines. From that conversation, this is Stephen Baldwin. Graham Staines was uh, an extremely quiet and humble and sensitive believer who was uh, had a heart for uh, those uh, in the subculture of India that suffered from the disease of leprosy. Mm. So he dedicated his life to serving those people and healing them while at the same time making himself available to share the truth about salvation in Jesus Christ. Now in a Hindi country like India, that's it's illegal to proselytize. So um, it, it turns out tragically in 99 that he was uh, you know, ruthlessly murdered along with his two sons. Uh, but the powerful story and the blessing more than anything else of Graham Stain's life was uh, the response the response that his widow and his, his existing remaining daughter, Esther, the message they had about the incident was simply this. When Graham Stain's was killed the next morning, the media people showed up relatively on the front door of his widow, Gladys Stain's, and when they asked her, what do you have to say about what's happened here? She said, we want all the world to know, and India to know, that we forgive the people who have done this. The next mm. day, so the headlines all over India was the Christian folks forgive those who did this. So as you can imagine, in the spirit that reverberated in a very powerful way. So now it's all those years later, and we're making a movie that in my heart and in my passion and in my hope, honors the memory of Grand Stains and, and his humility and his commitment and sacrifice to the kingdom of Christ. That's what the Stains movie is all about. And as you look at the type of life he lived and the ministry that he had, obviously he was dealing with people who had leprosy. A lot of people may not think that leprosy is even around. That, that was right. something you read about in the Bible, but mm -hmm. it's something that in many parts of the world I would imagine is still is still there. What what did he do for the people that were beset by this disease? Well, he showed them the love of God. That was one of the more powerful messages in the Staines film. When you hear some of the actors portraying these people that suffered from leprosy, and some of the actors were real people who suffered from the disease. They were really wow. put in the film. Uh, I, I think that Graham Staines understood uh, their persecution because in the Indian culture if you have leprosy it's spiritually considered that you're cursed when, when actually what Graham was showing the people of India was it's just a disease and you can actually heal these people and everything's fine and you go and they need the love of God like everybody else you know uh, so I, I think that's more than anything it was Graham's heart of understanding the the needs and the humanity of of just being there for, for these folks who suffered from this disease and just wanting to support them and, and show them the love of God. So as, as far as the, the message to the culture as a whole, and I know that you're in the, the initial stages of, of really getting this film distributed in whatever platforms yes. there are, but what would, you, what would you think would be the main, main takeaway or main lesson that people in our culture today can, can take from that film? Well, uh, Overall, in the retrospect of, of the Stain story, the, the most resonating, uh, I think, 
idea is forgive the power of forgiveness. Uh, the, the ability for Gladys Staines after this horrible uh, reality uh, occurred in her life, you know, she had such an amazing commitment to Jesus that the Spirit of God was able to uh, get her through it, you know, between the power of that forgiveness and I think another very important through line in the film is the power of humility. And what I mean by that was Graham Staines was, uh, as I understand it in his walk and in his experience, he was, he never steered away from his calling. He never got scared. He, he trusted in the Lord. Uh, so I think that kind of humility is also equally as important. Stephen Baldwin here on The Intersection. His site is Stephen, that's spelled with a P-H in the middle, stephenbaldwin.com. The movie website is Staines, S-T-A-I-N-E-S dot movie. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Peter Sprigg, Senior Fellow for Policy Studies at the Family Research Council. He provided an update on the Trump administration's latest announcement regarding policy placing limitations on transgender individuals serving in the U.S. military. From that conversation, this is Peter Sprigg. The uh, new policy proposed by the administration, the Trump administration, would um, reverse the uh, policy that was uh, brought in under the Obama administration, but it would not take us all the way back to the what the policy was before uh and so it does get a little bit a little bit complicated because um the the new policy updates uh the classification of transgender people on the basis of um the uh latest version of the dsm which is the manual published by the american psychiatric association the manual of um, of uh, mental disorders and um they're making a distinction now between people who uh, who have what they call gender incongruity, uh, which is that their mind they feel in their mind like they're a different sex from the from their actual biological sex, and gender dysphoria, which is the only aspect of this that is considered a mental disorder now by the APA. Uh, gender dysphoria implies that you have some sort of subjective dis- distress about this gender incongruity. Um, so essentially, under the new policy, people who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria or who undergo a gender transition, uh, once this policy goes into effect, would no longer be allowed to serve um, in the military. But those who, um, uh, who may experience this gender incongruity mentally but do not have a diagnosis and, are not, and do not attempt to actually transition – would be allowed to serve, but they would have to serve in accordance with their biological sex. Uh, so mm. that's really, which is really not what the transgender right, activists right. are looking for. Some of the things we learned from this latest report, I mean, we're talking about a 44-page report, so it had a lot of information and documentation. And um, what a lot of people may not realize is that there, the, the reasons why transgender people were um, not permitted to uh, serve were specifically health-related. They were related to mental health and to physical health. And um, this report now gives us an update with very specific data on 937 people who have been diagnosed with gender service members who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria since 
January 1st, 2016, under the Obama policy. And they, some of the things that they reported, for example, are that this population has utilized mental health services as, at a rate uh, 10 times higher than other service members, and that the cost, the medical cost uh, uh, for treating them is already um, uh, three times higher than that of other service members. And it does seem like that Jim Mattis has really bought into those principles, even though, admittedly, it was a rough process at the very beginning. Yes, I, I think that, uh, to be honest, when, when this process began, uh, we were not certain where Secretary Mattis stood on this issue, yes. and we were not certain what um, what would come out of the process that he undertook in the Pentagon. And well, we did have some concern that perhaps um, what he proposed would not would not be consistent with um, with what uh, President Trump had laid out uh, in his instructions to him. And so I, I would say that we were, for the most part, pleasantly surprised uh, by how consistent uh, this latest report was with the principles that the president set out last year. And um, as I said, there there are um, exceptions um, rooted in part based on the accepting this definition, this sort of formal definition of gender dysphoria, and in part um, uh, based on this grandfathering in of the people who have already uh, begun a transition under the previous policy. Um, and those are maybe not uh, ideal from our perspective, uh, but um, overall, the fact that uh, the the military, for example, going forward will not, not pay for hormone, th- we presume will not pay for hormone therapy or gender reassignment surgery for any more soldiers once this takes effect. Um, that's, that's, that, and, and will not permit people who have gender dysphoria or a gender transition to remain, uh, again, starting from the point that this um, uh, goes into effect. Peter Sprigg here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. And we are nearing the end of today's edition of The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or through the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software. The Intersection is also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more at faithradio.org. Also through the Meeting House homepage, there is access to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. And you can get connected to video content, including content from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB 2018. Again, you can go to meetinghouseonline.info or visit faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.